Good to see everybody today. Good to be in God's house. And uh, this service is kind of special. It's always the one, you know, the one always before Christmas is uh, some special meaning to it as we focus again on the incarnation and really uh, are grateful for all that God has done for us and coming in in human likeness and in flesh. And when I look at those kids and, and thinking about, you know, what they have learned or what they've seen or, you know, what their parents have put into their lives, I, I'm hearing some good stuff. They understand that, that Jesus came and gave his life for them and loves them. And I enjoy this time of year. I enjoy the festivities. I, I appreciate the fact, of course, that the family and is all part of that. And in a, as a kid, I always ex- was excited for Christmas. Anybody else here as a kid, um, did you have excitement for Christmas? I, I you know, probably most everybody did. Um, we uh, at home, it was very exciting. We never uh, had the Santa Claus factor ever. It was never a, a thing in our home, but it was always kind of exciting because we would be in our room listening as mom and dad were in the in the room wrapping gifts and they were carrying on and, and they were, you know, laughing and, and whatnot. And that was kind of exciting to, to hear. And my dad... Um, early on, when I was young, really young, he was, he did, I got a lot of things that were things that he made, and um, one of the things I'll never forget is my train set that we built together, put the transformers and wired them all up, and and did all that kind of stuff, and, and spent the day together working on that. That was more memorable than he, and I still have that train. If you go in my office, the engine is on my, the credenza there behind my desk, and I, I keep that, but... Um, I guess Christmas traditionally is a day, too, for us in America for everything to stop, right? It seems like everything slows down. It's a day to be in your pajamas all day, if you wear pajamas. I don't, we don't want to get too personal here. But nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, husbands nudging their wives. I don't know what's going on here. But anyway, um, uh, lots of food, maybe good friends. I, I have for many years made breakfast, make a big breakfast, and we celebrate um, and remember that Christ was born, and we exchange gifts because uh, God gave the greatest gift and the gift of his son. So I guess Christmas traditionally is, is it, for all of us in America, has much of that slant to it. And as a kid, I would love Christmas break, you know, being home from school and not having to uh, worry about getting homework done. And I don't think mom maybe liked it so much being around uh, a lot. But um, in general, I think Americans, and we, we share these experiences in our church family too, as, as I've heard you talk about your Christmases over the years, um, we understand that, that those days are, are very special, and they've been, uh, traditionally, uh, we get a lot of the Christmas traditions in, in America from um, the different things throughout the years and ages that have come along um, that kind of lend to it culturally, but obviously as Christ followers, we understand the great, great overwhelming significance of the incarnation, that God came in human likeness, and um, Every Christmas, I, I'm reminded of that at this time of year, and, and every day is Christmas, really. The tradition of Christmas is really, in America, a family affair, and it's, it's, all that focus is wonderful, and it's good, and it's great, but it has nothing to do with elves, it has nothing to do with magic, it has nothing to do with reindeer, it has nothing to do with Santa Claus, it has everything to do with the incarnation, with God in the flesh. So um, we want to take another look at that in the incredible incarnation. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. And let's go through today, and what we want to do is we just want to go through the story, through the historical account. Can we do that together? 
And we're going to take some, just take some look at some things and be very simple. I had a number of comments last week about different things that were very exciting and, and how God moved in our lives, and that's wonderful. But today I want us to take a, a step back, and, and instead of Matthew's gospel, we're going to be looking to Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in, fur in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Of all the gospel authors, Luke is the most thorough, he's the most articulate, and he's, he's got a financier uh, for his writing. If we attribute much of the uh, book of Acts uh, to his authorship as well, and some even I'm kind of inclined a little bit that way to give him credit for Hebrews, although we have some debate about that. Um, but if you were to give that, he would be the majority writer of the entire book of the New Test entire New Testament. So he's very articulate. Theophilus is his financier, and he's been, you know, uh, supported in this work to record this account as well as Acts. And so he's gone on a mission to do this. He's, he's very articulate for that reason, and we have other... Of course, perspectives from Matthew, uh, Mark, and John, but we certainly have a, a, a beautiful, very in-depth, from an educated man, um, a little bit different from the others, uh, appointed to manage and lead because uh, he is, he is uh, called by God to do so. So Luke introduces two people here that are very kind of antithetical to the Mary and Joseph narrative that we find in the historical account. And first of all, um, we Caesar... Um, and Kyrenius, and I have a picture of the busts of these guys here, and uh, they were interesting guys. And then on the other side of the coin, we have Mary uh, and Isaiah. We looked at this last week, uh, and in thoroughness, uh, the, the Immaculate Conception, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Remember, we went into the Ahaz account in history and how come that was so significant. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel, the name of the song that we just sang, Emmanuel, God with us, is what it means. And, and, and also we have Joseph. So we have Mary, and we talked at length about her last week. And, and Joseph, consider his position here. He is uh, engaged to a woman who is already pregnant, and, and the thing that that might look like in the culture of the day, obviously, and her being young as she was and, and not... Uh, not that different from what culture would have been in her day, but nonetheless, think, consider his position. And yet the Lord appears to him and says, hey, don't be afraid of what society's going to think. Don't be afraid of what's going to happen. And I'm so grateful for that today. I have known over the years many women who have been pregnant out of wedlock, and I want to let you know today that God has grace on you no matter what you've done. Amen? God loves you just like you are no matter what you think or how you think or you may have failed. Or even the, the men in our day that have um, had a relationship with a woman and, and they've become pregnant. I want to let you know that you're not too far lost. That's not something that's unforgivable. That's not something that God can't bring you back from. God loves you just like you are. Amen? 
He is concerned about your life. And I'm so grateful for the account of Mary and Joseph because it gives us this hope in Scripture that we don't have to be afraid of man's image or what the world looks at us like. We only need to be concerned with God's grace, which is sufficient for us. Now consider Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem's a significant, insignificant place, really. Micah 5.2 prophesies that this would happen this 700 years earlier which is among the profound things, and we mentioned just a few of them last Sunday, the profound connection that the Bible has to the truth of God and the revelation of God and in how the, the prophecy fulfilled reveals the validity of the word of God. Here we have another one in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, talking about the insignificance of Bethlehem, that Christ would be born and that he would be the savior of the world. And it's no small journey. Consider them going from, um, um, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and as a crow flies, it's 70 miles. 70 miles for a very pregnant woman who shortly after they arrived at some point had a baby. Consider the walking or the jostling, perhaps, on a horse or a donkey. Consider the traveling that it would have taken. And, and David, King David himself, grew up around Bethlehem, as, as we know from Scripture. He tended sheep around there. And so there was all this family there. And so Bethlehem, really during this time of the census, was like a family reunion of sorts. A very small place, but grew to an incredible amount of people. Um, and so they're all going to their hometown to register, right? Joseph is from, Joseph is this backwoods kid. He's a country pumpkin. He's, he's from this little town. He's not from the city. He's from Bethlehem. I don't know if they had accents or not. I have no idea. Um, but he, he was from this little place. He was from the outskirts. And, and, and where uh, this journey, how Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph did live, Bethlehem, are supposed to go in obedience to the government, sounds like today. Anyway, <clears throat> and Mary, here's Mary. One translation says, is great with child. Not just with child, but great with child, right? So she's ready to have a baby. Now, any of the women who have been at this point understands what Mary is going through. And here she is on this 100-mile walk across the wilderness and maybe on the back of a horse or donkey, like we said, to give birth to God, perhaps by the side of the road. No doctor, no medical care, just Joseph and her apparently. And it's a terrifying prospect. But God, in his providential sovereignty, what does he do? He, he, he needs to get this couple to Nazareth, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and he does so. Why does he do it? Because he fulfills his word. He said it would happen, and that's where it happened. So they make the journey, so they don't give birth along the road, on the way, despite all the bumps and all the things. And, and he's born in a stable, in a manger, as the children so adequately pointed out to us today. The story, the historical account is beautiful. It's messy. It's ugly, and it's pretty. It's a it's an ugly beautiful, or a beautiful ugly. It really is. It's not pristine. He's not born in a palace with gold and, and all this stuff surrounded by servants and helpers. What does the king of, of glory do? He comes in human likeness in the most humblest way and is born. Then we have these other people in the historical account. We have the shepherds. Now the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verse number 8, let's read further down. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's pretty specific, right? Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Imagine the sight. When the angels left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord told us about. Powerful. A powerful visitation from angels. They're standing, they're doing their thing, as shepherds do, and they have this, this encounter. Imagine. Matthew's gospel introduces more to the cast centered around Jesus. As we know, the Magi came later, but the, the wise men, as Scripture calls them in some translations, the Magi, uh, who, un, like un, you know, popular belief, were, were not at the stable at Jesus' birth, but sometime thereafter, they came you know, anywhere from six, to two year, six months to two years later, potentially. Who knows? And there's, there's no mention that there is three of them, but only that there were three gifts, right? Um, that's something that I think we often see in our manger scenes. We see three wise men, but there were three gifts, the Bible says, and, and a, perhaps a, a more of them in the school of the Magi. So, and then there's this star, the star that appears in the sky. I mean, it's kind of a thing, kind of subject to some speculation. Some think it, it was just a supernova gone critical, and, and there's all these thoughts, and there's a great documentary out on that, but think about this star. And these guys that have been studying this star, and it was their life's work, and we're going to get more into them in a little bit, but if, if we were just to take it that it was some sort of light in the sky supernaturally, uh, that's, that's good enough for us, but, but that would be no reason that they would, that would be the reason that they followed it as well, right? And we'll talk about that in a little while. And all of a sudden, I believe that they were believers, and we'll get into that, but they were very familiar um, from the scriptures from Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent in Numbers 24.17 they were familiar with the promised star of Jacob in Isaiah 7.14 that, that, that the virgin born God with us would be there so since the days of both Daniel and Mordecai um, these guys had an understanding they had some heritage in their culture and, and from their learnedness and, and that would prepare them for this mission to head toward Jerusalem. Then there's these gifts. The gifts is the, the kids said gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now gold is a gift for a king, right? It has a purpose and it represents the gifts of kings. Jesus was the king of all kings and gold is a representation of that purity and that wealth and that richness. Frankincense, um, another gift that was brought, I'll never forget when I was a youth pastor in Oregon, there was this kid that came up to the youth group and he was outside in the parking lot he said pastor would you pray for me and I said well sure I will and he said do you have any Frankenstein oil and I said well I don't know what you mean by that I, I have some frankincense <laughs> I guess we could use that um, he said oh yeah that's why I thought it was Frankenstein though the way that I read it in the Bible it's like okay well anyway no frankincense not Frankenstein oil I don't know anything about that but libanos is a verb that's used to signify the part of the process of taking that um, fragrance out, signifying um, its brilliance of smell. It was a vegetable resin, and uh, 
bitter. And frankincense was imported from Sheba. It was very expensive and because of its high price, was kept in a storage room in the temple. And, and it was used as incense of the high priest brought into the inner sanctuary. And it's a powerful application for who Jesus is and was. Number one, gold is for a king because he was a king. But the representation of the, the role that Jesus has for us today as our high priest is a powerful one. They got the, they got the uh, ability to make frankincense by making cuts in the bark of the arbor thurus. It's a, it's, a, it's a bush, basically, and it was for fumigation and sacrifices, for perfume. And those who were condemned to death were... Um, given it mixed with wine to drink before their execution so that they might not feel pain and um, had among other purposes but frankincense has powerful illustration for our lord because of the way that he died and the illustration there is beautiful that myrrh the gift for a sacrifice myrrh is from the root meaning it means bitter and it's a it's a gum uh, from a, a, also a shrub and the fruit is smooth large little bit bigger than a pea and the way that the myrrh comes or gets its um antis it's antiseptic and a stimulant as well but it was used as perfume in the way that they they got the um ability to 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 make myrrh from this is they they had to crush it they had to to beat it until it was until the the spice came out and it had to be crushed and thoroughly beaten to extract the aroma and you know i find it so awesome that the Bible says in Isaiah 53 twice that he was crushed for our iniquities. The word means daka is there to crumble literally. And in Isaiah, in verse, further down in Isaiah 53 and verse 5 and then verse 10, it says, the Lord's, it was the Lord's will to crush him, to crush him. What a beautiful illustration. And myrrh was mixed with oil and used to anoint kings. It was used... Um, for bodies in burial as we know from Jesus and these three gifts were worth a lot of money so they come they it was a great amount of wealth actually at this point that was given to to Mary and Joseph and and I'm sure assisted in helping them as they raised Jesus and we don't know how long they were in Bethlehem but it couldn't have been very long because Matthew's gospel tells us that an angel came to warn Joseph to leave and to go to Egypt and not to come back until Herod had died and 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 History records that the reason they fled was because of Herod. He's a despicable guy, Herod. He's, a, he's an awful dude. I mean, he's called Herod the Great. I mean, who calls themselves great? Uh, well, I know a couple people in the culture, they have called themselves great. Uh, but nonetheless, he calls himself Herod the Great. I mean, it'd be like walking around like, you know, Shane the Great. I mean, who does that, right? I don't know, Shane, have you done that? not ask him. Uh, or never the great, right? Or Jim the great. I, it's just like you just don't go around saying, I'm, you know, but he's a, he's a terrible guy. But he's also a pretty smart guy. He's a manipulative guy. And he was responsible for rebuilding the temple, but he was very bloodthirsty. He was very cruel, as we'll see in, in just a moment. But nonetheless, he ruled in Jerusalem at this point. And when he was told um, that some prestigious, rich, and educated guys, statesmen had traveled from the east to see the Christ child. The Bible says that the visit of the Magi disturbed the whole city. He had to see them. 
He had to see them. Imagine the prophecies being foretold for so long from one generation to the next, being passed along, the word of God um, coming, finally coming to pass, and these guys are very interested, and, and they arrive and in that time. Imagine if something like that were to happen in our time. Friends, i got to tell you, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is very soon. And we've been saying that. People are like, oh, I've been hearing that for years in the church. You guys are crazy. And that's what the Bible says about us. The people will say that, and they will say that we're crazy. Well, I'm sure in that time, many people would have thought that Jesus being born in a stable, fulfilling the Messianic prophecies concerning the Christ, written by Isaiah 740 years earlier, by um, Micah in chapter 5, more than 700 years, all the way back to Genesis 3, right? If people would have thought that Jesus would have been coming in the likeness of a little baby in that time, they probably would have thought them to be crazy as well. But here he is, fulfilling. Imagine this. Imagine all these prophets, the conspiracy of it, and the search for the Christ. Now all of a sudden, these guys are coming to town, and it's disturbed the whole city. Herod was disturbed. This was on Fox News, right? I mean, th this was being told. Hey, did you know that these guys have come to town? Did you know that there's, there's people here now, and, and, and the Bible's being full? All of a sudden, there's this chaos, right? And just Herod's, he's bothered. Imagine him. He's, he's troubled, and he doesn't like it. He's very self-arrogant. He's pious, and so he's got to do something about this competition. In fact, we learn uh, in, the, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, after Jesus was born, after he was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one that has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, remember the star, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where is the Christ to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written, verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. I like that word, shepherd. Verse number 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly. Now, see how he's doing? And he catches this guy, right? I mean, he, he's just a, he's just a, a picture of, of selfishness right here and manipulation. He called them secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And that's an important thing. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may worship him. And he refers to him as a child. So Jesus is no longer an infant. He's a, he's, you know, a child. So, so the Magi leave Herod. They follow the star and find the house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are living. And they, they bring and they give these gifts. But instead of going back to Herod where Jesus is, they're warned in a dream. Right? These guys are warned in a dream. They bring their three gifts, but there's probably a lot more of them. And they, to go back another way, and so they do. And imagine when Herod finds out that he's been duped. Imagine a guy that's so self-centered and arrogant and jealous. What does he do? He does the unthinkable. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, 
Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So here is this tragic thing that Herod did. It's, you know, not that dissimilar from what Pharaoh did, right? But here he is killing, commanding these babies to be killed. Could you imagine that happening to you? Could you imagine the government or culture or society demanding to come in and take your child and kill your baby? Great weeping. Jesus wasn't born in beauty. As we term and recognize beauty, but as we become believers and our eyes are open, we can call it beautiful, but this wasn't pretty. His coming was, was ugly. It was, it was horrible. We, we have these beautiful pictures of manger scenes and all this stuff, but it was a time of chaos, of political uh, horrible d d distresses and all kinds of messes and a vindictive, jealous, hateful king killing babies, killing children. Two years old? Your toddler? Imagine. The Bible says there was great weeping great weeping. The birth of Jesus was a bloodbath by those who were wicked. Herod ultimately died. Herod the Great expired from chronic kidney disease probably um, by some sort of gangrene and according to the medical investigative work of uh, a gal named John Hishman, uh, Puget Sound Health Care System, professor of medicine, University of Washington School of Medicine, he died from a Fournier's green, gangrene. But there are some facts about Jesus. Number one, he was born historically. He was born. Tacitus, Babylonian Talmud, Pliny the Younger, Flavius Josephus, Lucian, all record Jesus of Nazareth and that he was a real person, that he lived and that he died and was rumored by them, of course, rumored. Josephus writes about it um, in more specificity, but that he rose from the grave. So when we consider this, historically, Jesus was born. Jesus lived, and he died, and of course, he rose again. So historically, is true. Theologically, God comes to earth in human likeness. The Bible says he pitched his tent with our tents, his body being the tent. You know, the, the story, if only I were a bird, right? The guy's out screaming at the birds, got to come in out of the storm and opens his barn door. You know, he might save them, but they're flying around, crashing into his house and window, dying. And then he thinks to himself, if only I were a bird, I could tell the birds to come in where it's safe. Jesus came in human likeness to communicate to us the fullness of who God is. Socially, it impacts our world because people can choose to accept His love. We are connected to Jesus because of His great sacrifice. That's a social connection that we have. And doxology is the result of the, of the, the hist history and the theology and the socialist. Finally, when we accept these truths, what comes out? Worship comes out, that, that we worship our King he lived here. He did teach us life. He was tortured because of his love for us. He was crucified. He gave his life for us. He rose from the grave and he is returning one day for those looking for him. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. They, they came expecting something to see when they, when they came to bring their presence for the king, these magi. 
They traveled a thousand miles. You know, a thousand miles. They're called the Magi because they were from the east, and that's where we get our word magic from. They were magicians. They were astronomers. They were, they were astrologers. They were sorcerers. I, although I think all that was in their DNA and it was in their culture and they have been trained that way, they have been studied that way, they have good reason to be, I think that these were believers because they're pursuing the God of their enemy. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, it explains it. Now, we can't be too hard on them because uh, they were, they're not Jewish, okay? They're not Jewish, so the things that they've learned, they're, they're not uh, like people everywhere on earth that have a desire. They are like everybody on earth that, that have a desire to know about supernatural things. They don't know about God. There's no heritage and people to gravitate toward, but people want to know about spiritual things. That's why we have witch doctors and sorcery and superhero movies and imaginary things that dive us into the sci-fi world because we're, people are interested in culture about what is supernatural, right? Then we have these guys that go around. Have you seen those shows where they go around with movie cameras and try to find ghosts? Have you seen them? I mean, they go into places and, and they get it real quiet or whatever. That, you know, I'll never forget years ago one time, downtown Tacoma, the old city hall. How many knows where it is? It's right on the, the corner of the, the water there. And up in the city hall is the big uh, bell tower. And uh, my company was uh, under contract to help renovate one of the floors. And, and as, we were, as I first came into the building, this was, this was 10, 11, 12 years ago, we went into the building, the guy went in there, gave us a tour, right? And it's really fascinating, that bell up there in Tacoma, the mechanics and the works and, and all the way that they made it work, it's just fascinating. I took a lot of pictures. You stand up there and you can look out over the whole city. In fact, I think I have one of those pictures on my Facebook page. You're looking out all over the commencement bay there is off to your left. Anyway, so we're going in there and he takes us downstairs in this old city hall building where the prison was. And there's no windows, you know, it's dark and everything. And he turns his headlamp on. To, we all have headlamps on. He turns it to the red sex, uh, function, and he says, now it's rumored that there are ghosts. And I, <laughs> everyone was quiet, and I started laughing, like, oh, yeah, you're going to tell me another one, right, right. But people are interested, right? They're interested in the supernatural they're interested in these kind of things. And it's too bad that they're looking for the wrong spirit. i got to tell you that. They're looking for the wrong spirit. Anyway, so these guys are magicians. They're not ordinary in the respect that they're, they're well-versed and they're well-studied. And many theologians believe that they came from, and there's a, there's a big amount of evidence, most agree, that Balaam, remember Balaam's donkey, way back in Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, if you get through Leviticus, Numbers, and get through Numbers, way back um, in history, Balaam and Balaam's donkey, Balaam was a magician, he was a sorcerer, he was hired to cast spells on people, to... Uh, speak, speak curses on them. And many theologians believe that he was the father of the Magi. And, and, and they make a great connection. Remember when he came to cast a spell, a curse on Israel, God stopped him, right? God stopped him by talking through a donkey. Why are you doing this? And then he didn't believe the donkey. He was beating the donkey, so an angel appeared to him and said, hey, you can't be doing this, right? 
Uh, many people don't know it, but Balaam was the first one to prophesy about Jesus. In fact, look at Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Do I have that? I do not have that one. But anyway, if you look it up in Scripture, it's really cool because it says, I see him, Numbers 24, 17, capital H. Catch that. Referring to God, Balaam prophesies, I see him, capital H, but not now, I behold him, Jesus, but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So what's so interesting about these magi, these Persians, if you will, they go back to Balaam, and they are from Persia, and this is important, because Balaam, their first magician, they're his prodigies, if you will, um, the reason that they're from Persia is because Persia took over Moab, remember? So here is Balaam of Moab, and so Persia takes over. But what's so remarkable, these guys are well-studied, and what they do, they, they know the history. They, and, and remember uh, Esther and Mordecai's situation in Israel? They, they once see that God rescues Israel. And then again, they know their history and that their sorcerers, that the Magi could not interpret the king of their, their studying, Daniel, right? And they understand that the God of Israel is the one who gave Daniel the ability to interpret the dream. So they're seeing the God of Israel in spite of their magicians that they know came from where the history from Balaam. And they're looking back at the, the God of Esther and Mordecai, they're looking through the history of Israel um, because they're Persians, but they overtook uh, Moab, if you will. And so they're looking at the history of their enemy and seeing how that the God of their enemy consistently defeated their own gods, consistently overcame their own magic. And so um, he, Daniel chapter 2, uh, Daniel's also in captivity, and the God of Daniel saved him from the lion's den. That's in their history. That's in their understanding. And the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saved them from the fiery furnace. They're, even though the magicians and, and everyone else, the, the princes and the satraps and all these people, of their own people, tried to do the same things, the God of their enemy that they had conquered and lived among them was the one who consistently came out victorious. So these guys keep reading about this God of the Jews. And it keeps, how he keeps rescuing his people. And they read this prophecy from Balaam and about this star that will come. Now, Daniel prophesies that Messiah will come, specifically prophesies, Daniel does, in 453 years that he will be revealed. Well, from the time of Daniel's prophecy to the time of Jesus' birth was four, uh, he said, excuse me, Daniel prophesied 483 years to the time that Christ was revealed. But actually, Jesus was born from the time of Daniel to the time of the prophecy to the time that Jesus was born was only 453 years. So Daniel said the, the Messiah would be revealed in 483 years. Well, Jewish men always entered the ministry at 30 years of age. They have this example from Scripture, from Joseph, and from other people. And so Jesus revealed, 
Remember, his mother told him at the wedding, turn the water to wine, my time has not come yet. But we know that Jesus aged 30 years, so they added, these guys are smart. They know that a Jewish man's ministry starts at 30 years of age, so they figured that the prophecy being what it was, and they took the 30 years into account, and they arrived near the birth of Jesus. Now, tell me that this isn't true. Come on now. I mean, that's worth some doxology. The point is, this has been passed down for hundreds of years. The coming of this Messiah. And these Persian men traveled a thousand miles to worship him. Nine months probably. And, and they made that much effort to be in his presence to worship him. That's doxology for us. That we're excited now about Jesus. We want other people to meet Jesus. We want to live like Jesus. We want Jesus to work through us. We, we give our life to Jesus. And it works itself out in adoration and action. That's, that's doxology. That's worship. Adoration is praise, thanksgiving, prayer, trust, enjoyment of the person and the work of God. We can do, we, we can do that individually in moments of our spirit-filled life. We can do that when we gather in this place corporately. We can do that when we're alone we can do that under the preaching of God's word or in a time of worship we can do that when our body is broken we can do that when uh, our body is well we can do that when we're rich or when we're poor it doesn't matter but this sacrifice that Jesus gave that God gave in our behalf is worth celebration friends this is the story and I hate the word story because that's like um, you know fiction Lord of the Rings the history shows us that Jesus came and gave his life. And it's a fulfillment of messianic prophecy concerning the Christ. This gives us great hope. This gives us great hope. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power. And that your love never fails. We thank you, Lord, that you were revealed long ago. That you gave your life for us. And right now, we worship you.